Well, imagine a game or game night without rules, a class without a syllabus, a company without policies, a church without a constitution, a nation without laws, or a covenant people without the terms of the covenant that binds them in covenant loyalty to the God who has joined themselves by covenant. All of those scenarios, as you might imagine, are a nightmare, a world you would not enjoy or flourish in. And you might think the freedom nice, but that would diminish rapidly. You know, I just spent 10 days in Nairobi, Kenya. And this is not to cast shade on Nairobi because it's a city I've enjoyed very much. And it's a city with friends that I love very much. But there are no evident traffic laws. There are no uh, traffic lights. There's a sense, as in the book of Judges, that in driving in Nairobi, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so this morning, as we think of this message and we think of rules for a redeemed community, we've got to affirm that a world without rules is like a race car without a racing oval, a train without a railroad track, a building without a structure, or even a drink without a cup or container. You can just imagine what that would look like. It just doesn't work. But here's a big idea for our message, and it's this, that God graciously governs his people, the people he has redeemed. And he governs that relationship even through a series of rules, not rules by which we are justified, because that only comes by faith in Christ. And in fact, in the Hebrew mind, even in the Talmud, there is the summary that All the 600 plus rules that we find in the Torah, the first, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, those 600 plus rules may be summarized by Habakkuk 2 verse 4. But my righteous one will live by what? Faith. And so this morning we return to the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of Moses and Exodus in particular. I think it's important that we send up a drone. So for a moment, I want you to imagine that we are all now on our phone looking at the live stream of a drone that's taking us up to give us a bird's eye view of the scripture. In fact, the Torah, the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible are roughly 20% of the Old Testament. And John Oswald says that outside of the book of Genesis, Exodus may be the most important Old Testament book for Christians. Yes, Deuteronomy. Yes, the book of Psalms. Yes, Isaiah. Those three books in particular often quoted in the New Testament. But Exodus has a real pride of place. When I said it's the most important book for Christians, I want you to know that I do not assume that everyone here this morning, or even if you're watching via live stream, is a Christian. It's our prayer that through the hearing of the word, you might come to Christ. Not simply that you might be filled up with more information 
and that you might be a Encyclopedia Britannica of biblical knowledge, but that you might come to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That you might come to new life in him through faith, that is trusting him alone, and in, by repentance, turning from your sin to him alone. Nothing, nothing is more important. Nothing is more urgent for you. And it's our prayer this morning that even in this exposition, your heart might be moved, that the affections of your heart, your desire might be to know God as God may be known only through his son. Well, back to Exodus It's this book that provides really the subtext for the Gospels in the book of Acts. Exodus, as part of the Torah, was meant to be really read as a whole with Genesis, with Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the nine books, I want you to think about this if you haven't before had this thought, that the nine books from Genesis through Kings, and I'm counting the books of Samuel as a book, just divided in two for us. The book of Kings divided in two from us, as separate from the Hebrew Bible where it's treated as a unit. Those nine books from Genesis through Kings provide us this connected organic history from creation until the return from exile by Judah in Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. And those nine books are in two divisions. First, you have the Torah from Genesis through Deuteronomy, so that you might say that, in a sense, Deuteronomy is the end, both the end of the Torah and the beginning of these writings that take us all the way up to the point that the people are about to enter the land that was promised to them, to Abraham, in Genesis 12 in verse 7. And it's the first division, that is the Torah, of these nine books. You might count them as nine or as five plus six, eleven, but let's say nine from Genesis through Second Kings. It's those first five books that give us this connected history that contains six great scenes of the biblical narrative. I don't know if you've seen this, of how the living God was forming a people from himself out of whom, that is, out of Israel would come this Messiah seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head and redeem a people for himself in fulfillment of that promise, that first evangelical promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and take the shattered shalom in the garden and bring it to pristine restoration. And that we as that people would joyfully prize Jesus Christ, this one who crushed the serpent's head is supreme above all else. Well, what are those six great scenes from the first books of the Bible, from the first five books of the Bible? I want to give it to you. This is very helpful in, in moms and dads with your children. A great way to say, hey, let's look. Let's look at those first five books and say, what are those six pictures? You could even put them on the wall 
in your house someplace. Number one, creation in the fallen world is scene one in Genesis 1 through 11. Secondly, in Genesis 12 through 50, what we call patriarchal history is Canaan as the land of promise. And then in Exodus 1 through 15, what you could call the pre-Sinai portion of Exodus, you see Israel as slaves in Egypt. And then from Exodus 16 all the way through the book of Leviticus, including up through Numbers chapter 10, Exodus 16 through Numbers 10, what we might call Sinai, simply Sinai. And then finally, or fifth, in the wilderness is what we call Numbers 11 through 36, in the wilderness. And then finally, the whole book of Deuteronomy, the fields of Moab. So first, Genesis 1 through 11, creation and fallen worlds. Second, from Genesis 12 through 50, Canaan, the land of promise. Thirdly, the third scene, slaves in Egypt in the first 15 chapters of Exodus. And then fourth, Sinai from Exodus 16 through Numbers 10, including the book of Leviticus. Fifth, in the wilderness, Numbers 11 through 36, and then finally, the fields of Moab, which is the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. And so now as we continue this series in the book of Exodus, as I wanted this to be a reorienting message as we kick off, because we're going to be a long ways now, be a bit of some tough sledding, some swimming upstream as you think of this second half of the book of Exodus. I want you then to think about the entire book of Exodus and to think about the structure of Exodus. So I'm going to give you four words, four words for 40 chapters to give you a sense of the structure of the book of Exodus. Number one, the first word is deliverance, and that's chapters 1 through 15. We've already, of course, been there. Deliverance. Not the movie Deliverance out of, you know, the foothills of North Georgia, but deliverance as a revelation of Yahweh's power. Deliverance is a revelation of Yahweh's power. Secondly, the second word is wilderness. And that's for Exodus chapters 15 through 18. Wilderness as a revelation of Yahweh's providential care. Third is the word covenant, and that's for where we are right now, chapters 19 through 24. Covenant, a revelation of Yahweh's character. And then finally, in verses, in chapters 25 through 40, tabernacle, or you can say the tabernacle. And it's this idea, it's a revelation of Yahweh's purpose, a revelation of Yahweh's purpose. And that's the word there for Exodus chapters 25 through 40. Four words, deliverance, wilderness, covenant, and tabernacle. Thank you for your patience as we've set the stage for the journey ahead. So we are now, based on these four words, I'm asserting that we're in the covenant portion of of the book of Exodus. In the whole of chapter 19 
addressed the motivation to accept the covenant. Chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments is a summary of the terms of the covenant. Ten enduring words on two tablets of stone and summarized in those two great commandments given by Jesus to that lawyer who tested him in Matthew 22. And he said this in response to the lawyer who asked, what is the great law? What's the great commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Verse 5, and he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. And then Jesus adds these words. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And of course, the reality is that that law that was written, those tablets that God's own finger inscribed those ten words, four on the first tablet, six on the second at Sinai, anticipated and pointed to a day in the new covenant when God by his spirit would put his spirit within us, his law within us, and the law would not so much be written on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. That's what is being anticipated there. And beginning in Exodus 20, verse 18, there's this whole section where the terms of the covenant are communicated to the people. Three weeks ago, I think it was Sunday night, January the 8th, we studied the introduction to this section in verses 18 through 21. And at the heart of that introduction were Moses' words to the people there in verse 20. You might look at this, Exodus 20 and verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. This is why God has spoken. And I want us now to see how God continues to to spell out the terms of the covenant from verse 22 here through chapter 21, verse 32 this morning. And as a section, you'll see, that there's more to this section, and I'll expound on that in a moment. But there are three sections to our exposition this morning. Just a reminder, you might say, what type of preaching is this? This is consecutive, expository, but not detailed, verse-by-verse preaching where we labor over every phrase of every sentence. This is big idea preaching. This is not maybe like the Puritan who spent 25 years preaching to his congregation on the book of Job. We're not going to do that, okay? So just, I hope that doesn't disappoint some of you, but that's where we are. We're not going to labor over every phrase. So this morning, just three portions to our broad brush exposition. Number one, in verses 22 through 26 at the end of Exodus 20, we'll call it altars and worship, altars and worship. Then in the first 11 verses of chapter 21, slaves and fairness, slaves and fairness. And then in verses 12 through 32, 
injury and equity. Injury and equity. So as we think first about altars in worship, I have a question for you. Have you ever thought how important is worship? How important is worship? It's everything. The people God redeems for himself are first a worshiping community. Even in our series of messages sometimes about what are the three things the church is called to do. It's worship. We serve God directly in worship. We serve one another horizontally in nurture, living out all the one another's of the New Testament. And we serve the world via our witness. Worship, nurture, witness. But worship is everything. It's why the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.9, wording that's couched in this language of worship, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And worship is so important that a first principle of worship is this. God regulates the worship he will receive from his own people. That's the first principle of worship because he's the object of it. That's why this psalmist says, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. God prescribes the worship that will please him from his people, the people whom he has redeemed and brought into relationship with himself. And in verses 22 through 26, we see here God giving regulations for his own worship. What do these look like? Look at this section with me, if you will, just for a moment. I want you to notice I've pointed out that really it briefly looks like five things. Number one, it looks like worship that is shaped by God's words, by divine revelation. He says, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked. You've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. It is God who is speaking at the point that he's prescribing what his worship will be like. Secondly, it looks like a restatement of the second commandment there in verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. God is spirit, as Jesus told the woman in John 4, and therefore he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Nothing fashioned from the material realm or fashioned to create or to resemble anything in the created realm is to be made, is to be bowed down to, or is to be substituted for that spiritual worship of the one in three God who is true spirit. But it also looks like sacrificial work or worship that comes with a price elsewhere Someone has said in the pages of Scripture, I will not give what has cost me nothing. And so therefore, there's this requirement for an altar. Look there in verse 
24, an altar of earth, God says, you shall make for me. And it's upon this altar that a variety of acceptable sacrifices are to be offered. In this case, both burnt and peace offerings, not as an exhaustive description of all the offerings that we might offer God in worship, as we'll see more in coming months in the rest of the Torah. But the first is a reference by this burnt offering to this an appealing aroma, the appealing aroma of a, of a sacrifice. And the, the second, the peace offering, to the appeasement of his just wrath against God. And so a peace offering taking away God's wrath and unhappiness, his anger towards sin and the sinner toward us who need the covering, the atoning benefits of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so not to, get, not to get ahead of Pastor Jamie, but in Hebrews 13 and verse 10, we read these words, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And we may understand that the Lord Jesus is such an altar. Uniquely, he is that altar upon whom God offered him as that once for all time very pleasing and very appeasing sacrifice that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And let me tell you, that... That's great news. That's great news. You face, you face yourself and your failures, your own sin, and you come and you may say, we have in the Lord Jesus an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The implication is we in Christ do. But also as we think about altars in worship in these last five verses of chapter 20 in Exodus 20. It looks like a measure of freedom in worship, though that freedom is regulated. You'll notice how the freedom looks like two options as far as altars, an altar of earth or an altar of stone. But you see, it's a restricted freedom, for God gives but two options, but then he also gives Two qualifications, and one is that you shall not make it of hewn stones. And what does that mean? You think about that. The idea is don't elaborate, all right? As the stones were not to reflect manufacturer, they weren't to be hewn. Neither was Yahweh's worship to reflect man-made design or invention. And so even as a church, those elements of worship that are normal with us as we gather for corporate worship is not something that the elders of Grace Baptist Church just came up with. We derive these from the word of God alone. And so when we pray, when we sing, when we have the word read, when we preach the word and we receive it, by faith and with humility, when together we take a common cup and a common loaf and we have communion on the third Lord's Day of each month. And then when we have those that are professing their faith publicly and they're baptized here in the waters of baptism, those are not our 
design. They're not man's invention. And so this worship looks like a measure of freedom, but a freedom that's regulated. And lastly, I want you to see that this looks like where God's name is recalled in worship. His glory and the true good of his people have this incredibly happy intersection. And so he says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Remember, at this point, Israel is on the move. They have not made it to Canaan. And we're going to see a measure of some structure when we come to chapter 25 in the tabernacle. But at this place, they're on the move. And so he says, acknowledging that they're nomadic, he says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. Not simply I remember my name, but I cause. I'm the moving force, the first cause where my name is remembered for, the, for my worship, he says, there, these things intersect. The pursuit of my glory and your eternal good, they come together in my regulated worship. Well, let's talk about slaves and fairness, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 21. Your ESV Bible may have a non-inspired heading that says laws about slaves. And I say that tongue-in-cheek to say a non-inspired heading, right? The headings, even the chapter and verse divisions are not part of the inspiration of the Bible. Does everyone get that? Okay. So even where you see above chapter 21 there on page 62 in your ESV Bible, it says laws about slaves, and that's for the heading all the way through 32. The truth is there are other laws that don't pertain to slaves in that section, right? It's not exhaustive or precise. But as you look at that, I want to mention that John Oswald calls this the fair treatment of slaves. And I don't want us to gloss over the introduction in verse 1. He says, now these, this is the Lord speaking, now these are the rules that you set before them. This word mishpat, or in the plural mishpatim, it might be fairly translated ordinances, judgments, or even laws, though normally it is Torah, right? That's translated law. These were the rules that would guide the judicial decisions of Israel as a theocracy as God's nation. And there are only two cases here in these first 11 verses dealing with slaves. All right? They're pretty simple. And in case you're wondering what we'll do over coming weeks, not all in one message, is I'm going to take each week and seek to continue to place, for our understanding, law and gospel, word and spirit, in the role of the law. I think if you've been part of this series, you'll note that we've taken the Trinity hymnal that's under the seat in front of you, and we've taken part of the shorter or larger catechism to try to understand what is the role and the purpose of the law. But we're not doing that exhaustively in one message, but week by week. You'll see more in the coming weeks here. But 
for the moment, as we've moved from, if you will, moral to civil law in the case of slaves, initially without regard for anything but their freedom, there's two cases. There's two cases here. I want to distinguish, I think this will be helpful if you think of two classes of law, apodictic, which is do this, do not do this, versus what we call casuistic, okay? And that's the idea where we're taking general principles and using these general principle and enduring principle, applying them to specific cases, but we understand that by the general principle that's reduced to specific cases, we don't have a specific, every potential case or situation is not contemplated. So what we're looking for is the enduring principle to be implied, to be applied to particular situations. And so first, in verses one through six, we come to the case of the Hebrew slave. It's pretty simple. They served six years, and, and in something that looks like, like an echo of the Sabbath, it is in the seventh year that they were free to leave. And there was no place for perpetual slavery. Now, I want to share this with you. So over in both Lagos and in, in Nigeria and Nairobi, Kenya, there are tons of animals out and about, particularly in, in Nairobi. And I was in no less than three homes that had a maid or an IE, a young woman that was living in the home, living full time, who was there as domestic help for the family. Does that make sense? Okay. And uh, as I was able to just ask a few questions to understand that those women came voluntarily. It was a request on the part of their family that those young women would be cared for, that they would have a roof over their head, they would have food to eat, and that what happened, typically, those families, each month, they give that young woman everything she needs. She, even, she comes to church with them. She's part of the meals, and they put money in her account each month. She is free. She is free to leave if she says, after four months, I've had enough. She's free to leave, and then they give her the money that's set aside. But everything she needs during the time she's in their home uh, is given to her. She is just there to do all those things, care for children, to do laundry, to do meal prep, to buy groceries, to, to do all the normal things of domestic help to help their families, and at a very, very low rate. But as I was preparing this sermon, the reality is I began to think about those young women that I interacted with in three different homes, three different personalities. All these women were basically between 20 and 24. Um, and so we, we look at this, we, we acknowledge maybe this, the first six verses, first 11 verses of Exodus 21 is not something you're familiar with, but there is something that approximates it in other cultures. And so for this Hebrew slave, there was something that provided a complication, and that was marriage and children. And so if the wife was gifted, or if a wife was gifted to a male slave by that slave's master, then 
the wife and subsequent children were regarded as belonging to the master, not to the husband. And I think we can safely assume that by gift, that means that that male slave perhaps paid no dowry for the wife, okay? And in this case, the male slave was free to leave, but the wife and the children that he had and he had enjoyed now belonged to, the, to his master. But in the event that he could affirm his love for his master, his own wife, and his own children, then there was provision where he could remain and continue to enjoy those in the context of marriage and family with this one condition. It was for life. And instead of this tattoo that said, you and me forever, baby, like on his arm, you know, it'd be really cool, all right? By solemn ceremony, the slave was brought to God, that's the language of solemn ceremony, brought to God into a door or doorpost, as in think about into that home for which he now was pledging himself forever and imagine him standing next to the doorframe with his earlobe against it and a metal awl pushed against it. Bam! Bam! In this permanent hole that served as a visible and physical reminder of his lifelong commitment that said, I am my master's slave forever. There's a second case, and we find that in verses 7 through 11. It's a bit more complicated. You could spend a whole message on this. But after six years, a female slave freed was likely facing prostitution. That's how difficult her prospects were. And so that though continued slavery was not attractive, the alternative of serving as a concubine of her new master or her master's son was the better of the alternatives between prostitution or taking this new role as a concubine of a new master or master's son. But the entire goal here of these five verses, the focus, was that the young woman would be cared for and for treated and continue to be treated as a person. But there were three specific requirements that were in play. First, the young woman could not be treated by her master as mere property and be disposed of at will, like a rag that you're not willing to put in the laundry, you just decide to throw it out. The woman was not an object. She's not to be objectified that way. Second, He could only sell her within the family. So when you see there that word that he has no right to sell her to a foreign people, verse 8, better, maybe a better way to look at that is is the idea of a different family, not a different nation. He was free to sell her back to her family. And finally, if the young woman was reclassified by designating her for his son, Do you see that there in verse 9? If he designates her for his son, then from that point on, he would be required to only treat her in the manner of a daughter, no longer as a wife. He did not have that liberty. And the whole point of these 11 verses 
in the laws about slaves is that God cares for all people and his care extended to address the vulnerability of the women of his covenant. People, I was so excited to know that last Sunday it was National, the, the Sanctity of Life Sunday on January 22nd and we remembered that as a people here. Well, the final section that I want us to look at is verses 12 through 32. We've looked at, right, we've looked at altars and worship and slaves and fairness, right? Slaves and maybe you might say equity if you want it, one way of saying it. Slaves and fairness and now injury and equity. It's the third and final portion of our exposition. Some have called this cases of personal injury. And I want to point out that there are nine individual cases between verse 12 and verse 32. And I could have included 33 through 36 in this section, but we'll look at that next Sunday night. And I want you to notice that the first four cases in verses 12 through 17, these begin with this word, whoever. Just a shortened form of the one who. They're just Hebrew verbs that are in participle forms. And the final five then begin with the word when. Kind of a way of creating this conditional scenario. When, then, or if, then. Let me illustrate this. It's like when snow is forecast like a good South Carolinian, then race to the store and buy milk and bread. That's what that is. When, then. All right. I think to some of you that makes sense. And what, sorry, for those of you from the north, please, you may have fun at our expense. (laughs) So what do we find in these verses? There's three basic categories of personal injuries that God addresses with a series of cases. Number one, in those those first set of verses, 12 through 17, injuries resulting in capital punishment. And then in verses 18 through 27, there are injuries not resulting in capital punishment. And then finally, by, and by capital punishment, I mean the death penalty for the human offender. And then third is injuries caused by or to an animal, all right? Caused by or to an animal. It's John Oswald that says these regulations continue to reveal the character of God. And he writes this, he says, they teach that Yahweh places very high value on human life. That he values humans as persons and not objects. That physical injury ought to be compensated, but not with physical retaliation. That intention and knowledge must be considered when applying justice. That justice is so important that it is not a matter for personal or family application. As in, from Romans 12, I the Lord, right? I'm the one who meets out justice. Don't take your own revenge. And he goes on to say that it is punishment must rest on the guilty and not on others. And so I want to draw out several principles from this last section, just four main principles from this final section in the next few minutes. Number one, first, God's law is evident. It is honored. 
The fifth and sixth commandments are all over these rules. If you were doing DNA testing, they're there. We see the fifth commandment. You shall honor your father and your mother by reference in verses 15 and 17. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is implicit in the first rule, verses 12 through 14, and then in the fifth through the ninth rules in verses 18 through 32. You might remember that the Hebrew word for murder in Exodus 20 and verse 13, in connection with the sixth commandment, it includes those who cause human death through carelessness or negligence. That's noted in the footnote on that verse if you have an ESV Bible on on the bottom of page 62. What is the principle? The principle is that life is God's gift and is therefore sacred. And so God protects life. And that's why from verse 12 to verse 17, John Oswald notes there are five issues relating to the death penalty, and they're dealt with here in order of gravity from verse 12 all the way through verse 17. Even the eighth commandment is included by way of principle when you see man stealing there in verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, he shall be put to death. And it didn't matter if you were the seller or the buyer, that is the one having possession, both are complicit and therefore liable. There's a second principle I want us to see in this last section. Not only, not only is God's law evidence, but also motivation behind an act is most significant. Uh, I got my son's permission to to share an experience he had this week up in Maryland about the difference between why motivation and intent and knowledge are so important. Uh, It's the difference between when you were um, uh, maybe in the first or second grade and maybe some of you were very mischievous like this and someone was about to sit down and you pulled the seat away intentionally and that person fell. They were thinking they were going to sit if all the way to the... Okay, that was malicious intent on your part. All right, maybe you did something like that. But this week our son was uh, running on military base up in Maryland and running along and he knew he was close to a construction site. But he's just running and he didn't see this... Uh, string that was marking the edge of a proposed sidewalk and he's running along looking just like this and all of a sudden he hits this string and it you know it gives and he said dad it was something like out of a cartoon and he finds it he's feeling the resistance as he's feeling the resistance you know he's falling and he almost fully face planted but he ripped up his hands in the gravel right below it and he said, he told, he talked to the construction workers, hey guys, you really need to mark this out. But there was no ill intent, maybe negligence, maybe an accident, but there was no malice there. So motivation behind an act is most significant. An injury caused by accident or carelessness is one thing. But what we see in these verses is that injury or death is a result of malice or premeditated forethought is an entirely different matter. Motive matters. It's more egregious and with far greater consequences to the offender. 
Yes, death is death or injury is injury, no matter if it was caused by accident or evil intent. But it was this jurisprudence that was laid out for Israel that really prioritized motive and intent. You can see even in verses 26 through 32, in that final case, the ninth case, there's a difference between the punishment given to the owner of the goring ox or the the ox that happened to gore someone maybe for the first time and the punishment that was given to the owner of the ox who had knowledge of his ox's previous behavior. There's a third principle I want us to see and that's the sacred protection for life. As we think of this word sacred, think of the sacral bone, the kind of the beginning point of your spine right below your belt. It's that which everything kind of rests upon, which requires something that's set apart, regarded, if you will, as holy, as special. So we see the sacred protection for life, the sixth commandment. We see the sacred protection for parents and the family relationship, particularly in verses 15 and 17. Think about that young people. If you've ever thought to want to slap or hit or curse your mother or father in the civil laws given to the nation of Israel, there was the provision for the death of those who are so foolish to do that. And there's a reason for that even as we think of the family relationship. It was capital punishment even for dishonoring one's parents. John Oswald says this, what is at stake here is almost certain public humiliation there in verse 17, in which the worth of the parents is destroyed in front of the community. And he said the rabbis took this to be the act of adult children with malicious intent. And it was the negative side of the fifth commandment And instead of those adult children presenting one's parents to the world as people of worth and dignity, persons from whom one's own identity is to be defined, the parents are exposed to ridicule by the very ones who ought to be protecting them. And he goes on to say this. He says, As said above, human society made up of such people cannot survive. And this is what he says in summary about verses 15 and 17. To destroy the family unit is to murder society. To destroy the family unit is to murder society. And so there's sacred protection for life, the sixth commandment. There's sacred protection for parents and the family relationship and the fifth commandment. And then there's even sacred protection for the rightness of property, that eighth commandment. These these protected here are sacred spheres. And just as they were surely inscribed by the finger of God on that second tablet of stone to answer this question, how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor? It is these that bear witness to God's regulating the way we love one another and giving shape to that. Finally, I want us to see in this passage an emphasis on equity and fair 
compensation or recompense. You'll know this week the great sadness of this young man that was brutalized, I think, in, in the city of Memphis uh, and died at the hands of, of five policemen who had sworn to protect and serve. And it looks like by any, any reasonable criteria, they, they, they transgressed that. And so the city of Memphis, their own law enforcement is thinking about, you know, how do we respond to that? All right. And this is an emphasis here. And that's the idea of equity and fair compensation. Re- re- recompense when, when a loss has been suffered. Punishment is to be in accord with the crime or the loss caused. You'll notice, let me show this briefly in three things. The man struck there in verse 19 when two men quarrel. The one that was struck by the other and injured in a quarrel was to be compensated for the loss of his time. Let's say he missed two days of work and a day of work was worth $200 as a result of being struck by the guy that he quarreled with. That compensation should look like $400. Even included care for his full healing. You'll notice there in verses 22 through 25, it was the husband of the woman who prematurely gave birth, and I think we could reasonably assume that that prematurely giving birth probably resulted in the death of the baby. It doesn't say that. But it's the husband of that woman who was given the right to at least propose or impose a fine for that offender that would be subject to the judge's determination. And then finally we see in verses 26 and 27, just another case here is that the master, in the event of a lost, you see this, a lost eye, an eye struck and destroyed, verse 26, a tooth knocked out, right, and not replaceable in that day, the master in that case was compelled to relinquish his slave if he had intentionally injured that slave and caused the irreparable loss of an eye or a tooth. These are rules for a redeemed community, and I know it's late. Let's just wrap this up just for a moment. How do you respond? How do you respond when you see God saying, do this and do not do that? How do you respond when you see Israel's civil laws reflecting that moral law that was given on the two tablets by the finger of God at Sinai as their covenant, as part of their covenant document? Do you want to rise up and shake your fist at God and say, I'm independent? I am autonomous. You have no right to tell me what to do. Or do you have the spirit of the one in Isaiah 66 that God says, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Make no mistake, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But God's law is a gracious gift And where we see that law of the old covenant, where we see it repeated, where we see it affirmed in the New Testament, 
we may know that it is abiding, is abiding in fact in another place. The writer says that love is the fulfilling of the law. Some of you know, I've repeated this often, the great Puritan quote that says that law is love's eyes and without, without it love is blind, but law, that love is law's heart and without it law is dead. How do you respond to God speaking and saying, this is the way, walk in it? You cannot do this without the help of his spirit. You cannot do this without a new heart being implanted in you. You cannot seek to keep the law as a mechanism, as a ladder of merit, even as Wesley preached for us a number of weeks ago from 1 John, a ladder of merit that you will climb up and thereby gain acceptance with God. But just because it is not that ladder of merit does not mean that it has no place in the Christian life. These are rules for a deemed community. Our great joy is that we had one. The book of Hebrews celebrates this. We have this one, this great high priest, this one who came a perfect offering for a whole mass of humanity. And I love, I want to read this to you as it speaks of him. It speaks of the Son of God there to say this about him. It says... Since then, in chapter 4, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But, and in parentheses, we do have one. We do have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is his concluding remark. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. O fellow lawbreaker, come to the one. Come to the one who fulfilled it for you and to find life and peace in his name.